Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of The New Health Club Show. My guest today is Patrick Cox. And I have to say, he is a very special guest to me because I bought his shoes to be cool. <laughs> Patrick's shoes made you belong to the so-called cool Britannia in the 90s. The band Oasis wore them, glamorous DJs and rock stars wore them, cool Londoners, the cool nightlife world wore them. More than that, the whole fashion world, worldwide, like Patrick's fashion taste. Patrick was a design superstar. His nickname, Janet Jackson gave it to him, was Party Pat. And Party Pat had everything. Obviously, lots of parties, celebrity friends like Elton John, lots of money, charm, party stamina, talent, humor, and so on. Until these things turned out to cover up his old trauma, the one that he experienced at age four. Patrick never thought about this time in his life anymore, especially not as party pet. But a few years ago, Patrick lost everything, his company and his ability to ignore the old trauma with his certified tools, traveling, partying and ignoring. So he tried everything to save his mental health. He started with rehab and the Hoffman process, but nothing worked. At one point, he even told his friends about his possible suicide. Before it was too late, he found toad vernum, AK5-MeO-DMT, or let's say it thankfully found him. Toad vernum is found in the poison of Bufo alvarius, a toad native to the Sonoran Desert in Mexico. Since these toads are endangered these days, there's also a synthetic version of 5-MeO-DMT helping to save these toads. But the effect is as powerful as the natural version, and I just wanted to add this here. Patrick, after a few experiences, said he didn't hate himself anymore. After he'd done a couple of 5-MeO experiences with a certified shaman and somebody he trusted, and he met in Ibiza. He found out there was nothing wrong with him and he realized his childhood trauma had affected him his whole life. The only question was, who would he be now if no longer party pet? This is what we're going to talk about in the podcast too. Who actually are you after your psychedelic experience? Patrick and I talk about how an intervention from Elton John looks like and feels like. How alcohol lost its so-called cool Why heavy partying and depression are siblings? How Generation X never learned anything about healing? And how trauma you have experienced so long ago will catch up with you, even if you have everything you think you should have. I'm very grateful for this conversation with Patrick. I'm grateful for his openness and honesty, something really special to me. So please enjoy the show and Patrick Cox, who's also a great entertainer, I have to say. I am very excited to have Patrick Cox on the show today, whose shoes I was trying to buy as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Anne. Hello to all your New Health Club listeners out there. 
to be quite honest, I never thought I would interview you because I remember like browsing the uh, London warehouses um, stores actually, or like the worldwide stores in New York and everywhere and seeing your shoes, uh, which I couldn't afford at the time. <laughs> <laughs> to quote The Guardian, the celebrity shoemaker was a fixture of the 90s London scene. Then after the collapse of his business and his mental health, he found salvation from a very unlikely source which is psychedelic, <laughs> since we are a psychedelic podcast. When I look back on my life, now that I'm more awake, mm -hmm. now that I'm more aware, uh, and now that I'm working on this documentary and working on memoirs, I realize I've always been running um, since childhood. I've been running um, from the situation at home, um, from never fitting in. We moved back and forth to Africa. We moved all over. I never went to the same school for more than a couple of years. I never lived in the same country for more than a couple of years. Um, just through my whole life, even during fashion, when I was super successful, and don't get me wrong, I had the best time, but there was this, always this niggling feeling underneath that I was not worthy, that I was not good enough. And like you get addicted to various things, I got addicted to the success of my career and the validation. I mean, you know, that's all we want. That's why we all click on a like on our phone on social media is because we want that validation. And for me, I could just look at my sales figures because we were probably the biggest independent shoe company uh, in the world at the time in fashion terms, you know, obviously there's big ones, but in fashion terms and, you know, it was, um, it was amazing and I had a great time, but deep down inside, I just felt like I didn't deserve it, <laughs> that I was a fraud, that it was going to end at any moment, that I would be discovered, I would be outed. Um, and when it did all go wrong, I was like, see, I deserve that. <laughs> so I, I reveled in the in the failure of my business, let's say, uh, because that showed me that everything I'd done up to that point was a fraud, um, which is an insane way of thinking. I mean, you know, when I talked to people before, I used to describe myself as a giant failure, and they'd be like, "You're Patrick Cox. <laughs> I mean, you're like really successful." But I I couldn't see it. Yes, I could see money in my bank account. Yes, I could count my press pages. But in myself, when I sat alone, I was still just a lonely boy wanting validation, wanting love, wanting to be told I was good enough. And I had no way of finding that out on my own. Um, when I first lost the company in 2007, I ended up doing the Hoffman, which is a self-help process. I'm sure your listeners mm -hmm. know all about that. That saved my life and got me thinking in a different way. But I was in way over my head. I mean, it, the Hoffman is very much a last chance saloon when you've been in rehab and you've done therapy and you've done everything. I had done none of the above. It was my first introduction. So everybody around me was, they were kind of talking psychobabble. I had no idea what they were talking about half the time because I didn't know what the ego and the id and the self and all this. I was like, what? I just, it was just way above my pay level, let's say. But it saved me. It got me questioning. It got me realizing I didn't have to respond in the manner that I'd always responded. I probably still ended up doing that. I said the same reactions, but I had a moment of clarity where I thought, this is learned behavior, Patrick. You don't have to start to beat yourself up. But I would anyway. <laughs> so that was my first experience. Then when I came to Ibiza and everything went really wrong and ended up in rehab um, for depression because of suicide ideation, all these sorts of things. I fundamentally 
disagreed with the 12 steps program. <laughs> I had a rough time in my 28 days in rehab. They said I, I challenged them every day <laughs> is what they said at my turning out ceremony. Uh, they said they never really had anyone like me. Uh, they found it interesting having me there, but they were quite glad I was leaving. was <laughs> what the counselor's um, uh, final opinion of me was. And I just, again, that got me thinking in a certain way, but it just, it was people talking to me. It was just talking heads. It was people telling me, telling me, telling me what I had to do. And I don't react well to that. I've never reacted well to authority my whole life, from my parents, through school, through onwards, which is why I had my own company, because I didn't want to have a boss. Um, and then when I finally experienced psychedelics in the true sense and with, with Toad, instead of people telling me, the Toad just showed me. Because um, there is nothing new. You know, all this stuff that I was told in therapy, like the longest road is from the head to the heart. Like, what the hell does that mean? I know exactly <laughs> like, what you mean. Live in your heart, not your head. Living your best you life. <laughs> yeah, why, what does any of that mean? But with the toad, it just showed me. It, it just, it silenced all the voices in my head. And I was in this place of love where I realized I was good enough. And it was the most the biggest experience of my entire life. Let, let's before we come really back to the toad because it's it's a very interesting you know own chapter I feel. Let's go quickly back to the to the nineties London time because, I mean, I what I saw a couple of videos on YouTube. It's like everybody was wearing Patrick Cox in London nightlife. Um, it was always like champagne and Patrick Cox shoes are connected. As a, as a lifestyle <laughs> item. And at the same time, I feel like, I mean, I, I kind of started to, you know, like look into, I'm not that lifestyle, but of course I was also like impressed by Oasis, by all these bands, all this kind of glamorous rock and roll lifestyle. I mean, it was a really big thing. It was like a super attractive, a super, um, I don't know, the lifestyle everybody thought that they wanted to have, I mean, pr practically worldwide, I would say. So, and you also had this nickname, uh, Party Pat, as I saw. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, who was, who was Party Pat? If you, if you describe that person from to looking at that little person, big person, a successful I, person yeah. today. It was, it was, if uh, now that I am more awake and aware and I could look back at Party Pat, but when Party Pat was happening, it was Janet Jackson who actually named me Party yeah. Pat at an Oscar party because she liked the way I move. She liked my style, she said. <laughs> I never met her before in my life. Um, and um, it became this persona that I adopted. Um, in, in the Hoffman, you get the name of what you did to deserve love as a child. And I was given the name Pleaser because in a violent household, I was constantly singing and dancing and trying to make everybody stop hitting each other and trying to make everybody happy. Um, so I adopted this persona of pleasing, reading the room. By moving constantly my whole childhood, you'd arrive at a new school, you'd either going to get the shit kicked out of you or you were going to make people like you by the force of your own personality. So that's what I'd learned to do. And I realized, party pack, yes, I had a great time. Do not feel sorry for me. I went to everywhere. I you know, did loads of drugs, had lots of fun. I don't regret any of that. But it became an armor 
that I wore when I went out to something because I knew nobody wanted me to be miserable. Nobody wanted to really hear what I was going through, uh, or at least I thought so. So I would just be happy. And if that involved before going out the door having a line, or if that involved just, you know, whatever, I would just put on this persona. So people were always like, he's the nicest guy. He's the nicest guy. I was dating a guy and he broke up with me because he goes, you're too nice. Oh, he goes, it can't be, he goes, okay. it can't be real. And I was like, oh, so you want me to be more of an asshole? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Uh, I worked for this French company, Charles Jourdan, and we did a tour of Japan, a press gig. And I did something like 18 interviews in one day in one windowless room. And the French PR said to me, you're too nice. He goes, I used to work with Eddie Slemen. He goes, be more of a diva. And I went, you're telling me to be a diva. I'm just doing my job. He goes, no, you're too nice. Um, and I would, I would denigrate myself. You know, I would insult myself in a sentence. I wouldn't even realize I was doing it. It was just my self-defense mechanisms is I'll get it in before you do. Uh, but then people in the end started to think, this is weird. You know, it, you can't actually say these negative things about yourself. You can't actually believe them. But it was a way of, it was an armor. It was an armor party, Pat. But yeah. it was fun. <laughs> until, it, until it wasn't. Until it until wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. th there are a couple of questions around this. So because, like, and that's why I said it in the beginning, like, I feel like a lot of people have this, let's say, uh, trajectory that they have an amazing time, they're super successful, they party a lot until they get to the point where they see, well, I seem to party a lot because I don't want to look into certain things. Of course, it's not to say partying is per se something bad. It's just that I feel like after 40, a lot of people start to look at the hard partying in a very, or have to look into this in a very different way. So It, because, I mean, since I live in Berlin here, it was always a very big um, topic, the, the, par the partying away of things. So, Should we be clear, partying, we mean taking drugs, Yes, right? taking drugs, <laughs> drinking alcohol, drinking. Uh, yeah, staying okay, up okay. for uh, three days at Barkheim, like, yeah, whatever yeah. you want. Um, I always had the vampire rule. Even in my darkest partying, as soon as there was daylight, I went the fuck home. <laughs> and I think that probably, I think it probably saved my life. I mean, the exceptions were when I came to Ibiza and did things like you just said, stayed awake for three days nonstop. Yeah. But in London, even at my worst, as soon as there was daylight, I was like, nothing intelligent is happening anymore. Everybody's just going, yang, 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 gak chat. So you just run. <laughs> okay. So, but, but, but how close do you think are partying like really hardcore partying and depression because that's this question i always ask myself even when i was by myself partying in berlin at the time and um secretly i always had this question why are people kind of trashing themselves including myself like like in, it was always in the back of my mind and uh, but there was not really the moment to bring this up. So do you think it's a very, it's a closer connection than we actually think it is? Well, I think it's like the song, the drugs don't work. They just make it yeah. worse. I mean, mm -hmm. drugs were a lot of fun. I'm not going to be one of these people who nails myself to the cross of repentance and says, Oh, please forgive me. I did all these things when I was younger. <laughs> I had a great time. <laughs> I don't regret them. But when it stops working and you keep going, 
and it, you start to have the longest hangovers and the deepest downs and you get into, you know, suicidal place or things like that, that's when it's time to stop. You know, someone might have said you should have stopped earlier and not taken it. But no, I mean, so much of my career meeting Vivian Westwood's team in 1983 and becoming Vivian Westwood's shoe designer, that happened in a cubicle in a toilet in, in, in London, yeah, yeah, New Year's sure. Eve at the Pink Pussycat Club. What the hell do you think I was doing in the cubicle in the toilet with the Vivian Westwood team? I mean, obviously, we were doing drugs. And so many things, working with John Galliano happened because me and John Galliano did drugs together at Taboo. Me doing with this, me doing with that, me meeting this person, me meeting that person. Most of it happened you know, over a toilet in a bathroom or something like that, you know, because that was what kind of the 80s and 90s were. Um, it was all part of the scene and what, what everyone did and how people socialized. I mean, yeah. now I can't even imagine it. I mean, of course I can imagine it. I'm not an idiot, but it just, it's anathema to me. It's not what I want in life anymore. Um, it was just how we existed, and the mm. price didn't seem to be that strong to pay, uh, hard to pay. I mean, I could party all night and go to work. Now, if I, I mean, I don't, but if I did party, I'd need a week off. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be laying at home crying. <laughs> but then you just went, kept going, kept going. Mm-hmm. You know, I would travel Monday to Friday, work in Italy, land Friday night, be high within two hours of landing, be awake half the weekend, and then fly back to Italy on Monday and keep working. No problem for Mm. years on end years and years on end yeah i mean it was that it was that almost like required lifestyle in a way so um but i mean fortunately you had let's say a lot of also famous friends who talked to you about it at a point where it didn't seem to work for you anymore and where they told you well you have to go we want you to go to rehab before you do something really bad to you no it wasn't even that um because when i moved to ibiza that was a big what the hell is he doing amongst my friends um okay i I just announced it i think it was my 53rd birthday i said the house you're standing in is sold and i'm moving to ibiza in six weeks and everybody just turned to each other and what the (laughs) and of course everyone said what is he on now Uh, that was the biggest and then one of my friends said so you're just going to become a drug addict full time and i said let me explain i can get coke delivered in 12 minutes in London. It takes about an hour in Ibiza. I said, so I know you think that, you know, moving to some crazy place, but I'm going to be moving there to not party. And everyone's like, yeah, sure. And then I moved here. All sorts of things went wrong. And the the crowning glory, the straw that broke the camel's back was my younger English bulldog died suddenly. He dropped dead at the age of seven years old. I was away in London at a party at the time when he died. So I had the guilt, the self-flagellation that I wasn't even there on top of him actually passing and something snapped something just Mm -hmm. snapped inside my head um i had been talking openly like as if it was a normal conversation very sanely and reasonably about suicide i talked about it with my mom i talked about it all the time and it was just like i don't think my life is going to get any better i think it's just going to get more and more and more painful so i just want to exit I mean, I would, compl- I would, you know, I wouldn't even say kill myself. I was just like, it's time for me to go. I mean, because, you know, and I had even ha- figured out how I was going to take my dog, who was still alive with me, in this exiting. Um, and then I said it to one of my friends, one of my dearest friends on the phone. And then she called up 
one of my best friends, Elton, who is known for saving people and things like that. And I was driving, I was driving down the road in Ibiza crying just because that's what I did all day was cry. If I left the house at all, I was crying. And he called up and he was on the phone and he said, do you need help? Which is the classic rehab intervention, whatever line you want to call it. And I went, yes. And I knew what he was thinking. I knew he was thinking it was drugs and we need to help Patrick and everything. I knew it was depression. I knew it was, you know, not the drugs. To me, the drugs were the symptom. They weren't the cause. And, but I just thought, yes, I'm going to throw myself into their hands. And then they very quickly swung into action. And I ended was within 48 hours since in rehab in England for 28 days. But until then, I had kept my life very separate. The people who mm-hmm. didn't party, i.e. and Elton John, I, I didn't talk about it. <laughs> you know, I kept things different. That's what there were many, there are many Patricks, like there was Party Pat. There were different Patricks that different people got in order to please them and not to offend them. <laughs> so the people who didn't know what I was going through had no clue what I was going through because I never would present that to them. So the many, the many Patricks was still a tool to please other people, basically. Always, always. Mm-hmm. And in a way to, to fool myself, to fool myself. Um, you know, and I, 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 ultimately I felt very empty, but I've got this success. I've got this. I'm in Ibiza. I'm taking drugs. I'm doing whatever, you know. So, it, you know, how could you not be happy? Yeah. But I was, but I wasn't. But let's, let's quickly come back to your, because let's say, we could say childhood, but to this situation that seems very often also the root cause for people later in their life to become very irritated in terms of their belonging, their quality of life, and their uh, suddenly emerging depression. Although, like you say, they had like insane success and are super rich and have everything you think you should have. So that means what you described earlier. So you were moving a lot around. So you never had like, a, let's say, a place for a childhood that kind of stayed the same over a long time, a longer time. So and at the time, I guess, like as a child, you always think, oh, that's probably so exciting to go to several places. Or wasn't that the case? Or did you think as a child, well, I want to stay here right now? I mean, I didn't really have a choice. I'm, I'm born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. At the age of two, we moved to Lagos, Nigeria. The Biafran War broke out, so there was sort of genocide going on. Um, we could hear the machine guns going at night as they killed people. Wow. In the morning, we could see the military base, and the, there would be a row of freshly dug ground sort of thing. After a couple of years of that, my mom said, we need to get out of here. We left. We ended up in Chad, another kind of war situation was going on there. We lived in Chad. Then we went back to Canada. Then we moved to Cameroon. And in Cameroon, we stayed a year and then my parents divorced and then we moved back to Canada. And that was the end of the Africa days. So I, that, was, that was normal to me. I didn't know. I mean, I remember being in school in Canada and talking about elephants and giraffes and the teacher calling my mom in and saying, Patrick is a fantasist. And I was like, no, <laughs> we lived in Africa. There were crocodiles on the end of the road. Hippos came into our garden at night and ate the plants. It, you know, this is, he's not making it up. But it was just so foreign to suburban Edmonton, Alberta, <laughs> to, to have this kid try saying all these things. They thought I was a fantasist. But that was just, it was my life. Um, I love travel. I've always loved travel. But anything that you start to do, you know, you put on the, the treadmill and you don't have a choice, um, starts to become 
less interesting, less fun. Mm. So I didn't, you know, it was just what I did, but I didn't really have a choice. And as soon as I could, I mean, I moved out of the house when I was 17. I moved from Edmonton to Toronto when I was 18. I moved from Toronto to London when I was 20. I have always kept moving and kept moving. London was the longest I've ever been anywhere. I was London 35 years. Um, But, you know, I was away probably Monday to Friday, 20 20 something years of that. And then moving to Ibiza, people like, what are you doing? I said, well... The last big change I did, moving from Canada to London, certainly was successful and certainly changed my life. So I'm hoping this one does so in a different way, maybe not financially, but um, for me. <laughs> yeah. not for, my ba- for me, not my bank account. Okay. And that turned out to be much more important for me. And I mean, like, at wh- what, is, what do you remember? What time did this, let's say, unstable, not unstable childhood, but like, kind of not maybe secure childhood. I mean, when you described that you basically grew up in, in next to a war zone, which is yeah. in today's perception already enough trauma information to be unsettling for a child, even if you would just live in the same place. Um, so at what at what point in your life do you think you started to realize, well, this was something that was really affecting me? as in my own security or in my own feeling as a person? The thing that affected me, that I knew affected me and always affected me my whole life was the the violence in my childhood. Um, That I I knew was wrong. I knew it was wrong when it was happening. (laughs) I knew it was wrong in the 70s. I knew it was wrong in the 60s. I knew it was wrong as soon as I moved to the house and barely spoke to my parents for 20-something years because I was... You know, rightfully angry at the way I was treated, um, and then all the other things that you, when you start to become aware and you do some therapy and things like that, all the things that you didn't realize were related, and they were all acting out. Mm-hmm. All of it was acting out, which I never really put it together. I never really realized there was a thread. Um, I discovered marijuana at the age of thirteen. I discovered. Um, Acid at the age of 14, cocaine at the age of 15, and ecstasy, MDMA at the age of, at the age of 17. Um, I never really drank tea or coffee or alcohol. <laughs> I never really smoked cigarettes because those were things my parents did. Those were things that adults did, and I didn't want anything to do with them. So I went straight to class A's. <laughs> I just avoided everything that they did and did it my way sort of thing. Uh, but it was all trying to remove myself from this world is basically what all of that is. I didn't realize at the time, but all of that, that thread that goes through that entire period and then becoming, you know, famous and successful was its own sort of acting out. Let's go back to your therapy thing. I mean, as you said already, it's like, and this I think goes for a lot of people, including myself. At one point you almost like feel like you're inventing a story about yourself or something is not really working or the therapist invents a story who you are that's also something that is kind of deeply undiscussed as in my case like the cool woman who doesn't have children who had never wanted to be in the first place but my therapist had made up that story about me so and um and then but the Hoffman process and I'm super interested Did you, you do it? Did you do it? I did it. Oh, you did, did it. Okay. Okay. And it was also a while ago. And I still, when you, when I read it in your article, I thought by myself, wow, this was kind of the first step 
long time before psychedelics, but it was basically the step leading me in the end to psychedelics. So totally. I was the person who always, my nickname or my name was like, pull yourself together person. So always pull yourself together no matter what. And so, I mean, I, I almost forgot about it, but then in some of the Tim Ferriss episodes, he also talked about it or had an interview with somebody who's executing the Hoffman process as a tool besides let's say therapy and back then psychedelics so to get closer or to collect information about you and you said in in the guardian article you said it's like uh, prosecuting your parents yeah that, that 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 quote was cut because it's basically you okay. prosecute your parents you find empathy for your parents then you forgive your parents that that yeah, is the three exactly. the three steps yeah. i yeah got stuck on prosecuting yeah. <laughs> uh, because a lot of stuff came up in the Hoffman yeah. that I had never really thought about before. Mm -hmm. And I foolishly, because I'm all in, I arranged for my mom to be waiting at my house in London. I flew her from Canada to be waiting at my house when I got out of the Hoffman. I mean, Ooh. and I was just angry at her and you're supposed to do your masterpiece as you know where you say yeah. i love you and i know you've always loved yeah, me and that's yeah, the oh, way yeah. wiping wiping the slate sleeve i wanted to beat her up i wanted to throw her out of my house I mean, it was the most horrible few days until she left and obviously she had googled hoffman and it says blame your parents for everything so she was like this ready to be you know and i was just oh my god I, this is a really bad idea this is way too soon um since toad Me and my mother, and I've done my masterpiece many, many times. I end every single phone call with my mom saying I love you. Um, I have now reached out to my father, who I hadn't spoken to in over 20 years. We are now in communication with each other. Um, my real, my older brother, who I didn't really speak to since I left the house when I was 17, probably spoke to him five times in 40 years. We're now friends. We're now talking. Um, so all of that stuff that the Hoffman said, but I couldn't do. I can't. But I think it's also too much required from you to do this after this process. I think you have amazing information that you're getting. You yeah. have like a whole bunch of new insights. But I remember when I had to do it, like I said it to my mom while she was cooking. I was like, oh, you know, I love you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But today, exactly like you say, after my last, I mean, we come back to the toad in a second, after my last truffle trip, After this, my mother, I mean, I tell her about every trip now, and she says, like, you have totally changed. You were so under pressure when we were on the phone. You have no idea. And now you, we can just have a conversation. And it's yeah. really true, yeah. I have to admit. So, but, okay, so back to your Hoffman process. So you have all this gathered, this whole new information. And uh, then it took a while still until you got to the point to look into psychedelics. But how was your first encounter with the idea that 5-MeO-DMT in your case could be a solution for your, I mean, really dire situation? Okay, so as I said just a minute ago, I'd done acid since I was 14. I did, oh, course, I, yeah, I did psychedelics from about the age of 14 to 20, but I did them totally the wrong way, <laughs> taking them a lot in a club situation or in a party situation, never for introspection, but always to get out of it and kind of freak yourself out a few times, whatever. I never wanted to go near psychedelics ever again in my life. Where there was a resurgence of mushrooms, obviously, everywhere of the last few years. And I was like, yeah, psychedelics just weirded me out. It's just not what I want to do. Um, and then when I got out of rehab uh, three years ago, um, I'd left the island, did the rehab, came back. 
uh, I still wasn't really fixed because every day in rehab, I went, when does it happen? <laughs> and they're like, what is it? When does this magic thing happen that's going to stop me from not wanting to kill myself? I said, because right now, every day I want to kill myself. I said, and I just don't understand. When does this magic? And they kept saying, trust the process. I went, what process? I said, it's day 21. I leave in seven days. Give me a tool to get me through one day out there. Give me something without just all this stuff. And then we'd talk about, as I would call it, my tale of woe. I said, I am so bored of telling you about all my problems. I said, can we just talk about the future and how I'm gonna walk out that door and be as happy of a person I can be? And there never seemed to be an answer. There was always surrender, trust the process, oh, this is your ego talking, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, they would, they could make you look like, you know, tr there's all these truisms, because as soon as you get angry, they went, oh, see, you're getting angry. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so it just was no, no and then when I got out of rehab, I made some new friends on the island, and one of these girls, uh, one of the girls, friend of mine, she was microdosing LSD, and she said, you know, because as soon as I went into rehab, because I was suicidal, they wanted to put me on diazepam and antidepressants. I went, no. <laughs> I said, yeah, I don't want to be on anything. I want to live life to the fullest clean. I said, you know, I've taken drugs to change my mood. You're just giving me another drug to change my mood. I've been on antidepressants twice in the last 10 years. Um, they just flattened me out, you know. I mean, I, I couldn't cry. Of course, cry. they I, do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I couldn't cry for about four or five years after I stopped taking antidepressants because it just, it just wouldn't work. And I just said, I'm just so bored of this tale of woe. I want to know what I'm going to do. So my friend said, why don't you try these because it's kind of like an antidepressant effect. So I did that for about two, three months. I think every second day. I had a real problem with dosage. Either I was tripping balls and I couldn't drive or I was like, it didn't do anything. It didn't do anything. It didn't do anything. And also, okay. it really made my stomach gurgle. Really, really was not a pleasant feeling to be on taking, you know, three times a week. So you were constantly having this gurgly stomach. And then through this crowd of people that introduced me to LSD, they said, this person is coming to the island um, who is serving 5-MeO. Um, do you want to be part of this? And that's where the whole story actually came from. And it was kind of... Last chance saloon, you know, I tried the Hoffman, I tried rehab, I'd been through therapy. I just didn't really, it was going to end badly if I didn't do something dramatic. Um, and as some of my sort of more sarcastic friends would say, it was always going to be a drug, wasn't it, that helped you, Patrick? Because you were always willing to take a pill more than do the work. But that's a very facile way of looking at it because Toad just opens you to yourself. And you, you do the work. You are the medicine. You, you but I mean, have to also, be I think that's that's the relearning that we just have to do, like being cured by drugs. That's the because there is yeah. the war on drugs made us look in, into drugs in a different way. Yeah, everybody grew up with the Reagan idea or Nancy Reagan just say no, and like in Germany, it's Christiane F. That story is still the drug narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but now it's like. Drugs would actually make you a non-addict, and that is for most people almost impossible to to look into right now. But but coming back to the to the toad, so you you're meeting this person in Ibiza that so is tell offering. the story of how it all happened. Okay, yes, so this, yes. um, she is not indigenous shamanistic. She is blonde-haired Californian, uh, very big in the psychedelic community. Trish Eastman. 
you probably interviewed her, Trisha Eastman. And I have her, heard of her, yeah. Yeah, her partner's at the Johns Hopkins. They're both very big in the psychedelic world. Yeah, and of course, Johns Hopkins. Yeah, yeah and then um, so we ended up, my friends were organized for us to, for me to be part of this, this group of people that was doing this. Initially, there was some resistance because people said, well, normally you do ayahuasca for 10 years before you graduate to toad. And I'm like, oh, I've never done ayahuasca. And, and from what I've seen of it, it's not really something I want to do that badly. Um, so I had a talk with Trish on the phone for about an hour. I had to fill out all sorts of forms and everything. And she said, no, he's, he's ready. I think, I think he's ready. So came and did it. The first day, uh, I went first, the way it's set up, so I'd never seen anyone else do it. I had no experience of what to what was going to happen. Um, I did two doses of 30 milligrams, so I didn't break through. You do one dose, you land, and you do another dose, you land. I had a, an amazing experience, but when we were doing the integration later that night and everybody was like talking about God and you know all these out-of-body experiences, I'm like, uh, that's not what I got. <laughs> I said, I mean, I had an amazing time, but I, I did a drug. I said, I, I don't, you know, I, I didn't, it's not changed my life. And everyone said, you need to go again. You need to go again. So she was here for three days on the last day on the Friday. They made space for me. Last person of the day. I just had one friend stay and hold space for me to, cause everybody else had to go. Cause it was, you know, it was the end of the day. They all had to go make food, whatever. And, um, I did one dose of 50 milligram. And I sat up immediately and went, didn't work, which is pretty well impossible. But the voices in my head, the negativity had just become so strong, I'd somehow managed to repulse the experience, to just shut it down completely. And as I sat there, I was clenching my fists, and she could see it, and I was getting angry. I was getting angry at myself, going, you're stupid, you're useless, you don't know how to do this, you're a failure, you can't even do this. And I was getting angry at the people around me, what are you doing hanging out with these people? Have you lost your mind? What did you think was going to get happen to you from smoking the venom of a toad? because <laughs> it is pretty out there, I do admit, as a subject. And then she goes, you're going again immediately. So immediately I went again, and it changed my life. Um, I call my life pre-toad and post-toad. Um, the experience itself, you don't remember a lot of it, as you, as you probably talked to other people who do toad. And then I sat up, and everything had changed. I mean, the trees looked greener, the sky looked bluer, but the most important thing was... I felt like my heart had physically grown, physically grown, and I felt like my lung capacity had grown. And I was doing this really strange breathing, and they're like, are you okay? And I said, these are the first unimpeded breaths I've taken since I was four. I said, someone has been sitting on my chest, and they just got off. I said, I, I'm free because all of the voices in my head, I mean, I'm not crazy, I don't hear angels and everything, but, you know, that inner monologue. Of course, just yeah. constantly sure. told me I was not worthy, not worthy, not worthy, not worthy. Shut up. <laughs> and, just, and all there was was this place of love, acceptance, just being. Um, if you want to get metaphysical, you know, it's return to source. Um, I, like a drop of water being dropped in the ocean, I became part of something bigger. I became part of the whole. I connected. Um, and it was the most incredible, beautiful experience that has stayed with me ever since and continues to stay with me, which is you know, why I do Toad probably on average once a month. Um, it's sort of my church. It's sort of my communion. 
But it's also, why do you keep going to a therapist? Because you go deeper each time, you know, because mm-hmm. people say, isn't it a once-in-a-lifetime experience? I said, well, for 99.9% of the world, they'll never do it. <laughs> Let's start with that. And then the 0.0001 that do it, will do it once. And then there are other people, for various reasons, that'll do it more. Um, and for me, it's all about healing, um, knowing oneself, and then knowing our, my place in this, in creation, let's say. Before we talk about your life, like since, since this experience, so who do you think was this voice saying that you're not good enough and who was sitting on your chest? Uh, my parents. <laughs> both of them. My, yeah, both of them. But, but, but it ended up being me. It ended up being me because this is what I said in rehab. I said, I don't need drugs or alcohol. I can sit in a room and tear myself to shreds all day long with no drugs or alcohol. I, I can, you know, I can want to, I mean, you know, anytime I planned on killing myself, I was dead sober. It wasn't like I was stumbling around drunk or high. I was, it was planned. It was meticulous. And I said, it, um, yeah, I am my own worst enemy. Like I said, the drugs were a, a symptom of what was going on. They weren't the cause. And I had taken on board a twisted narrative of my childhood and just it became the, the mantra of my life. You are not worthy. <laughs> you don't deserve love. You are not worthy. Um, you will be found out. You know, you're a fraud. An um, imposter, the imposter yeah, the syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Oh my God. I remember in the 90s, I think the Sunday Times did it in one of those imposter syndrome questionnaires. I scored 100%. I mean, I literally was like, wow. <laughs> and that's when I was at my most successful. And my friend was sitting next to me and he goes, you're lying on every one of those questions. I went, no, I'm not. He goes, how could you think that? He goes, you're literally selling a million pairs of shoes a year. I was like, <laughs> you know, I just won't let you see that then, you know. That's so great. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people have that experience who are insanely successful that don't even know how many houses they would own, but they're still, well, somebody will find out and will yeah. get me. And then so, but I mean, so, okay, let, but let's come back to the moment. So you, you have this experience. Obviously, it's very, I mean, still the days after are still very kind of under the influence of, of this, let's say, also spiritual change in you. So after this, how did you took the first steps to, let's say, invite this new life in, into your new person? Because, I mean, I, th I find it always very difficult to... I mean, the, the more you do of these trips, the more you realize, wow, this is... Comp actually, eventually, it's the complete opposite of everything I had so far in my life. I mean, I had a full-on mystical experience. And you were talking to someone who is was one of the most atheist people you've ever met in your life. I could, you, you. Me, yeah. I tear yeah. to shreds religious people. I mean, just to the point. Uh, when I was, when my mom got divorced, she made us go to Sunday school and the priest came to our house and asked if I could please not come to Sunday school anymore because I was convincing all the other kids to be not believe in God and he was tired of arguing with me. <laughs> so that shows you wow. how long, how long my My rejection of religion has gone on my entire life. Um, but I experienced things which I could not explain. Um, and if you don't want to use the God word, if you want to use consciousness, source, oneness, whatever you want to use, but I became part of, reconnected to something that I could not explain. And it threw me into a complete tailspin um, and a beautiful tailspin. But 
just sometimes just sitting at home, just crying, just just trying to understand the beauty and how I could not have noticed it. And how could I be thinking of killing myself when everything is so perfect and so amazing? And instead of beating myself up about things that I did 20, 30, 40 years ago, just realizing that all of those things brought me to this moment and this moment is perfect. So they all happen for a reason. I mean, it, it was an incredible, humbling moment. And, you know, people hashtag gratitude oh, it used to drive me crazy. I was like, what the fuck have they got to be so grateful for? I said, hashtag blessed. Oh, fuck off. I mean, it just used to make me. And now I literally walk around in this state um, of just, Man. you know, yeah, just just a, of peace. Because I think to search happiness all day long, you're crazy because you can't be happy all day long. That's 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 bipolar. That's manic. But to search for peace. That is a beautiful place. That's a beautiful state. It's not an emotion. It's, it's a state of being. Um, and that's where I've managed to be. Of course, you have your bad day and you scream and yell at the wall or whatever like that. But I can return to peace as opposed to spiraling off into some land of self-hatred. So after I did the ceremony, uh, she left. You're allowed a follow-up call. I called her about a week later and I said, is it really bad if all I do is think about Toad. I said, I really, really would like to go again. And she said, I don't know why. I've, I've never really asked her. I'm going to have to ask her why. She said, you need to go again. She said, I would recommend you go once a month until you feel healed. And she said, but you can't go looking for the medicine. The medicine will present itself. And I just was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I, I've, I've never heard of Toad or 5-MeO-DMT in my life until two months ago. Now I need it, and I'm supposed to go find it, but I'm not allowed to ask for it. I'm like, oh, wow, that's going to be really successful. And then do you know the story about how I met my shaman? No. Okay, well, I should, obviously, obviously your listeners don't, so I'll relay it. So a week after this phone call, I went to a party in Ibiza, which is rare for me because I don't leave the house very often, but something compelled me to go. I have a tattoo on my wrist saying Caesar, which was the name of one of my English bulldogs that passed away. He was still alive at mm. the point. And I'm shaking hands with some man, and he looks at my wrist and goes, oh, Caesar. And then he rolls up his sleeve, and here on his arm, he had Caesar written in Arabic. No. Yeah, and, and I, was wow. like, I was like, what did he go, Caesar? And I said, why do you have Caesar on your arm? And he goes, why do you have Caesar? And I pointed, because I brought my dog with me, because the other dog had just died. So I didn't go anywhere without Caesar, the dog. And then he ran away and came back with this beautiful brown skin, bald head, beautiful white teeth, um, Colombian man whose name was Cesar. And he goes, this is my husband of 20 years, Cesar. And so then Cesar, the human, looks down at Caesar the dog, bursts into tears and starts hugging the dog. It turns out Cesar had an English bulldog who had died just a few months before. So he's on the ground at this party hugging my dog. I sit down on the ground next to him. We start talking about life and things like that in Ibiza. And I said, I had this most incredible experience. And I tell him, and he just looks at his mouth hanging open. I said, what do you do? He goes, I'm a toad facilitator. And I went, you're what? <laughs> he goes, I'm a toad facilitator. I mean, I never even heard. And I just looked up. I went, thank you. I, I don't know how to say anything else, but thank you. So about a week after that, I did Toad for the first time with Cesar. Uh, the man, beautiful. not the dog. Yeah, the, the, the man. Yeah, I'll call the man Cesar, Cesar and I'll call okay. the dog Caesar. Caesar, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I did it with Cesar. And um, he, instead of it just being a ceremony and then he leaving, he ended up staying here for about four or five hours and sitting and talking. And then I said, um, I'd really, I told him this idea, I want to go once a month. And he said, okay, yeah, I agree with that. And then it just developed into an incredible friendship. 
but an incredible relationship, sort of teacher-student, because this whole world was all so new to me, and I had poo-pooed it and made fun of it for so long, because um, that was my cynical way of, you know, oh, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. And then um, after about, let's say, a year of me doing Bufo once a month with him, he asked me, would I be his apprentice? Uh, oh, wow. and, I, okay. and I said, what? It turns out he was dying, which he probably knew, but, but we didn't know. He, we certainly didn't know then. So then I started to become his apprentice. And then by the next year, he spent probably half the year in the hospital. And then December 5th, 2021, he passed away at the age of 49 and left me everything that had to do with the medicine world left to me. And it was my job to continue on for him. Oh my God, I didn't know that story. That's very yeah. powerful. And that was so where he... the that's where the movie idea came from. Also, it was going okay. to be a, it was going to be a buddy movie because he was initiated into the Seri tribe, which is one of the indigenous tribes where the toad is on their land in the Sonoran Desert. He was initiated in the Seri tribe by the Grand Shaman. It had changed his life, so he wanted to take me there, and I would do the same initiation. Um, in 2020, we couldn't do it because COVID was so bad in Mexico. And then in 2021, he was in the hospital dying. Um, he kept saying, we're going to Mexico next week. And we're all looking at each other like, no, we're not. Mm. But for his sake, we were just saying, mm. we're going to Mexico next week. So that was the birth of the movie, the idea of doing it. When he passed away, I told the movie people I didn't want to do the movie anymore because it was all too fresh. They said, just take a month. And now the movie, the idea is it's, well, it's going to be dedicated to him. Mm -hmm. And we will we will go. It'll be my trip back to the Seri people to do Toad with the Grand Shaman, and then scatter some of Cesar's ashes in the sea right on their indigenous land. So it, it's he's still present in the movie, and he's still very present in my life daily. Uh, but he's no longer physically here with us anymore. Wow. Okay. That's um. So he gave you basically in many ways. He gave you a new life, right? I mean, completely. I mean, I would I, <laughs> every ceremony. Um, you know, you're supposed to set an intention before you get in. And half of my intention was like, you know, what am I doing? I, there's this thing I always say, life is in two acts. And I was stuck in the, and it's all about surviving the intermission. I was stuck in the intermission. I couldn't get past Patrick Cox, the shoe designer, and figure out what I was doing next. I'd lost the company in 2007. You know, that's 15 years ago, Patrick, get over it, as all my friends kept saying. But I just couldn't figure out what was next. I kept going back to fashion, back to fashion, back yeah. to fashion, but it just wasn't real. And in one ceremony, I was trying to think of an intention, and Cesar said, you know you keep saying what's next? He goes, maybe this is it. He goes, because this, when you talk about Toad, when you talk about this, you light up like I assume you used to when you talked about fashion or shoes 30 years ago. And all my friends said the same thing. It's like, it's the one subject. You, you know what it's like. You become a bit of a zealot when you get into psychedelics and you want to convert everybody. <laughs> and you quickly pull back from that position because you realize, no, they don't want to be. Let them be what they want to be. Not a good idea. <laughs> Not a good idea. <laughs> but I mean, but, um, but what, what, I find it just interesting that you that you bring up again, like the, the so-called, like, sh did you specifically say shoe designer? Because it's almost like more than that, actually, because it obviously reflected a very a specific feeling around that time, how, let's say, younger people were aspiring to be. So, um, I mean, it sounds like a, maybe like a funny question today, but wh why do you think 
the shoes were so successful and, and was standing for something at the time? Well, I, okay, so I, I moved from Canada to England in 1983, did two years of shoe college, and then 1985 launched my own brand. For the first eight years, I had an incredible press work. I worked for John Gallien, I worked for um, Anna Sui, I worked for Lanvin, I worked for all sorts of people, uh, Vivian Westwood. But I, I didn't really make any money. I had a very, you know, I had a great, huge, thick wad press book, but I didn't make a lot of money. And then in 1993, I drew this loafer, <laughs> which became the wannabe loafer, which was, it changed everything. We went from selling 2,000 pairs a season to 250,000 pairs a season in about 13 months. The whole company just exploded. And why the name wannabe? It was a very aspirational time. Um, everybody was doing diffusion lines, DK, DK, DKNY, CK. You know, you don't get my whole name, you just get my initials, yeah. you know, all this sort of aspirational stuff. And so to me, I was like, you're a wannabe. You want to pay 300 pounds, which is what a Patrick Cox shoe cost at the time, but you can't, so you're getting these pair for 80, but it's all the same signature, the same idea. And that shoe changed my life. And I always say, if an Italian designer had drawn that shoe and called it whatever, it would have come and gone. But because of the 90s, because of Britpop, because of the focus on England, because of my age, because I was living the wannabe lifestyle, it became much more than that. It became emblematic. It was the shoe of Britpop. It became the British ambassador that went all around the world was that shoe. Um, and this is before sneakers were allowed in nightclubs. You know, but you remember the doorman was like, sneakers, no, you're not coming in. So everybody had wannabe loafers on because they were so freaking comfortable to dance in. And then UK garage music made it like a staple. Patrick Cox shoes, Ben Sherman shirt, Moschino jeans. It was like, you know, it was a thing. And it just exploded all over the world by having all these great ambassadors like the Oasis boys, um, you know, all these people wearing my shoes all over the world. So anything that was cool and British, you normally look down and at the end of their leg, there was a pair of my shoes. So I think it, we punched way above our weight and it became more of a cultural phenomenon rather than just a shoe. Yeah. And so when you mentioned Oasis, for example, do you, are you still in touch with a lot of people from that time today? I mean, the, 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 key ones that I became friends with. Obviously, you meet so many people when you're yeah. at the top of your game. So other people, I would still say hi. It's amazing, the associations, the memories. Because when I meet people, I'm like their therapist. They, they literally sit me down and go, I remember my first pair of wannabes. And then they start to tell you their whole story about how this shoe changed their life. I mean, Victoria Beckham, there's a whole chapter about her first pair of wannabes. She didn't know if they would have any more money. So her and her sister split a pair between them with her first Spice Girl check because she thought that might be it. They didn't know that more millions were coming. Uh, it just, it became part of the zeitgeist. It mm -hmm. became part of the zeitgeist. Okay. And one thing I'm, I mean, I'm always wondering, how is it if Elton John gives you an intervention? <laughs> is it friendly? <laughs> is it? Yeah, I mean, it comes from completely from a place of love. Okay. Um, someone who's seen me, he's seen me at my happiest, who's seen me at my unhappiest, um, who, for his reasons, thought the, the reason for this was drugs. Um, but now probably realizes that that, that, wasn't, that that wasn't the demon. Um, but just love, a place of love and acceptance. So, but yep. I mean, so if you talk to him 
now with your new experience or like people, let's say in general, who are very close to you, who were yeah. scared that you would kill yourself and didn't know what to do, which you often don't because yeah. you're not a psychiatrist or even then it would mean you could ha save that friend. So how is your communication with them now in terms of what you've experienced and, and where your life is going now from here? Now, amazing, because I allowed it to be. Because before I compartmentalized everything. So I didn't talk about gay things with my straight friends. I didn't talk about druggy things with my people. Didn't I mean, I, you know, I gave each person what they wanted to see. And I didn't say everything. And now I don't do that anymore. Now all my worlds have collapsed and they're all one world. Uh, and, you know, a year and a half after, oh, two years after my rehab, um, I, I was with Elton and I was, you know, telling him all about Toad and all about Fight MEO and all about everything I'm doing. And you can just see his jaw kind of opening. And he just said, I'm really glad we paid for your rehab. Sounds like you're taking a shitload of drugs. <laughs> and I, you know, I talked about it more and then he was quiet. And then he said, you know what? You're the happiest I've seen you in, you know, forever. He was the happiest. And he goes, you were always going to do this your way. Um, he goes, you're the, he goes, who am I to argue? Who am I to argue? He goes, if it's working for you, who am I to argue? He goes, just be careful. And that has ended up being all my friends. Because um, initially, obviously, people thought, oh, you know, he's lost his mind. Sort yeah, of, thing. of course, yeah. But I would say probably 70% of my friends now have done Toad or are about to do Toad because live by the example. They're all like, you were so miserable three, four years ago or going back, you know, until the early 2000s. And you're not now. And they're like, you know, people who made fun of me who come back, can I do whatever you did three years ago? <laughs> I, I don't want, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, if, if you're ready, if you're ready, if you're ready for everything to change, you know, if you're really, and they go, I just, I've watched you, I've seen the difference in you, and I want that. And I said, okay, well, you have to be willing, you have to surrender, and then we have the whole talk. So, I mean, I think that's a great, um, if I can say this, reaction of Elton John, because I think it's the, there won't, there will be friends who don't understand, who don't want to get into this because they might not need to. But I think it's a great way of saying, okay, as long as I see this is really, even if it seems to be a hard story that you're battling here, but if it works out for you and you feel better, then... I'm going to well, support mean, you, right? I mean, you know, you were saying Nancy Reagan, just say no. My mom yeah. was Nancy Reagan, just say no. Oh. My mom now talks to me about psychedelics on most phone calls. My mom sends me psychedelic articles. Mine She's too. Like, oh, Mine saw, too. I saw this. Really? And, in Can and in Canada, toad is legal. <laughs> so I was like, okay. I, you know, and she said, do you think I'd benefit? I was like, well, you're 84 and you have a heart condition. So I think you're probably never going to do that. But, But she maybe even, she can you know, do other things, your mom. She yeah, could do other things. Yeah. So yeah, the can, thing, it's, I know my mom, you know, if I, if I spin in front of my mom for two minutes, she'll be like dizzy. She's, she's very, very, you know, if she watches a TV show with too many things spinning, she gets, you know, so I, the, the advantage of Toad, okay, it's intense, but it's short. I think if my mom did mushrooms by the end of five hours, she'd, she'd be hysterical. She, she just, just cause she needs to hold on to reality. She, she couldn't, she couldn't do the surrender part, which is so yeah. key. That's where people get into trouble is when they don't surrender. But have you ever, it. like, talking to her, made like a epigenetic connection to her that what trauma she has experienced also in her childhood? This was, you know, I mean, that's part of 
the Hoffman is experiencing. Yeah. You know, because being a child is so egocentric. It's your needs, your needs. Feed me, bathe me, do this, do this. You don't ever say to mom, did you have a bad day when you're four? Yeah, <laughs> no. You don't really put it together that she had a bad day. Um, I had a phone call with my mom two weeks ago. My mother has never really dealt with the fact of the hitting or anything, never, which in the Hoffman you say they've constructed their own realities because if they actually dealt with what they'd done, they wouldn't be able to live through their daily life. Mm -hmm. And we were talking the other day on the phone and she went silent and she goes, I know I hit you and I'm really sorry about that. I was just so angry. This happened two weeks ago. I'm 59. (laughs) I mean, and you know why it happened? Because I gave her the space to, because I wasn't, jumping on her, you know, because she would push my buttons, but I would allow her to push my buttons, which is what caused the 30 years of anger that I've had since I moved out of the house. But now we don't go there. Now I would give her a place of love so she can say something that vulnerable to me. Cause I called up my brother and told me that. And he went, she didn't say that to me. <laughs> I said, give her the space to give her the space. Yeah, But to. it's very interesting how they transform then also in another person at the moment that yeah. you start to be another person. And um, I mean, like, like I said, my, my mother even said to me, like, since you've done this high dose of truffles, you're a different person. And so the conversation is completely, it's a complete game changer. So, but also because I told her, if let's yeah. say if I wouldn't never mention it, I mean, she knows what I'm doing anyway, but still, um, like the way she, like if I call her now and say like, oh, I'm sick, I have a flu. She's like, oh, okay, you're going to do this and that. And before I'd be like, I know that. Don't tell me. (laughs) I know what I have to take. Let her her be a mother. Let her be a mother. (laughs) It's totally interesting. But coming back to your, let's say, to, to your new toad life. So how would you, how do you think, the next years how would you like to bring this legacy of your friend in, into the into the world or like work with people around this or facilitate for other people i think two-pronged um yeah. the documentary to me is is my passion project i'm very 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 um i want to spread the word um in a non-sensationalist way um if you try to find things about 5me or toad there's very little out there other than youtube videos of people foaming at the mouth and screaming and yelling <laughs> in mexico <laughs> things like that you know there's very it's very little thing that you can find there is that uh, amazing czech movie which was made in i think about 2016 2017 bulfo alvarez yeah. with um uh groff um and that mm-hmm. that's good but there's a lot of mistakes in it indeed they did a follow-up movie two years later collecting all the mistakes mm-hmm. saying we shouldn't have done this we shouldn't have done that we shouldn't have worked with octavio Retag, we shouldn't have done this we shouldn't have done that but i think what is needed and what is exciting about a documentary is because if it's just about psychedelics it'll be shown on gaia you know yeah. it'll be shown on you know the documentary <laughs> channel and 90 of the world's going to completely ignore it it's true so i think what's needed is is the human story And I think to have me as the protagonist and what's going on around me, I think that that is the key thing that is going to be good. Uh, have you ever heard of the director, the French director, Jan Koonen? Yeah, I did. Yes. So Jan is our director. Okay. Cool. Um, uh, someone told me, if, have you seen his movie Blueberry, where there's a 14-minute uh, ayahuasca scene? Mm, which no. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I've done ayahuasca, but it's not my medicine. But my friends are into ayahuasca. They're saying that is 
the best representation of ayahuasca ever portrayed in film ever. Uh, he's a great, great director. Um, he himself has done two documentaries on ayahuasca besides making that scene in that movie. Mm -hmm. He has been taking ayahuasca for 25 years. He serves ayahuasca sometimes. Uh, we got connected with him. He'd never done Toad. We talked. Cesar was still alive. We, we all met together. And he's, he's going to direct the project for us. And he's going to do Toad. He said, wherever he goes now, he's getting visions of Toad. And he said, even two of his people who used to do ayahuasca 20 years ago are now serving Toad and have moved from Peru to Mexico. So it's all about raising awareness. I mean, you know, what do I get out of that movie? I mean, I'm going to get, I'll be ridiculed <laughs> by half the world for the rest of my life. No, I don't think but I don't, so. But I don't care. But I do, ah, there, I mean, there's always a Daily Mail reader. There's oh, always the Daily Mail, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sure. There's always someone who's going to go, he's fucking nuts. So you got, you got to deal with that. But to me, if it can help save one person, and, you know, I was without being dramatic, I, there, I didn't have many options <laughs> left when I did Toad. Do you know what, but, and, and I saw the result. But I think this is really, I feel like since COVID maybe, this this is really changing. And um, like one thing that was really making me think that is when I think a year ago, Tim Ferriss brought out his podcast, his special episode, you could say, about him talking about himself being abused as a child between two and four. And yeah. I mean... I mean, I think like he, he even says it in the podcast, like his main um, tool to, to, to stay alive was control and to control his body, to control his efficiency, like control, control, control. So, and in a Vipassana um, um, meditation, he realized, well, I can't keep this down anymore, this thing. So, and it, it briefly overwhelmed him, but I feel like in the last years, people don't would not make fun of people anymore who would really tell them listen I wanted to kill myself and thankfully I found this and now I don't want to do this anymore because there are too many people secretly having this internal dialogue yeah. you could say yeah. that and I'm actually very happy somebody talks about this but one thing I'm always asking myself is do you think that let's say Generation X has a specific trauma and a specific set of mental health problems that they never really talked about or were able to express because everybody made fun of them if they would have i think every period has goes through their own traumas their own taboos don't you think you know things that were of allowed course, before yeah, yeah. you know sure violence sure. i mean if in the 60s and 70s everybody hit their kids violence, <laughs> the, yeah. te the teachers at it's school true. the teachers at school hit you i mean they'd all be in prison now if they did things like that you know so i think every generation has gone through their own sort of period of trauma um i wonder what it would be for today because today drugs are seen in a different way violence is seen in a different way i wonder what the struggle would be for kids today Well, I mean, disconnection. Yeah, disconnection. Yeah, social media. You know, where they they, they don't you know, but performing to you know to satisfy the needs of everyone. Yeah, yeah. I guess they would. That would be their their lack of identity. Let's say lack of soul. Yeah. Sorry, what was the question before? <laughs> so, the, so I, I wonder if if what are the because I mean if if you look at let's say Generation X, all the books yeah. that came out, for example, like. Um, Brad Easton Ellis is like the perfect representation yeah. of this. Or like, I mean, even you could say like Britpop, Oasis, that kind of music, that kind of idea of life. 
uh, what else, like movies like Betty Blue, for example, who is like a full on suicidal. If you look yeah. at it today, I'm like, I can't even watch that today. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, what is she doing? Like, but back then I was like, oh, an amour fou. It's not an amour fou, it's like psychiatry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that is something suddenly just comes to your head that, or to your mind that, let's say, even under 40, you were able to look at things like, oh, this is an extreme movie and oh, she's like having crazy sex with her boyfriend because she's so crazy. But and today it's like, let's stay with the Betty Blue idea, uh, a movie. Yeah. If you look at it, it's like, well, this girl is, has, you know, needs like medication. So yeah, the perspective yeah. has completely changed. So my, so I'm always wondering, I can never really tell if, if there's a specific default, or like uh, trauma that, that, people from Generation X are carrying around these days, now in their 50s, 60s or something? I think everything became very, with this explosion of style, specifically in my industry, in my life, everything became very superficial in the 80s. When you look at documentaries about the 60s and 70s, the music, yeah. they were talking about real issues. They were fighting freedom fights and everything like that. And then in the 80s and 90s, I, like maybe with the exception of hip-hop, which addressed issues and drugs and guns and mm. violence and things like that, everything became very superficial. It all became on what you present to yourself. Everybody became their own brand. Everybody. So I think there's a disconnect there. As you get older, you kind of think, what am I doing? I mean, you know, I, I said in the Guardian article, it's normal for you to change from the age of five to 15, from 15 to 25, from 25 to 35. But then you get to about the age of 35 and you're supposed to just stop and be that person forever. You know, yes. you're like, and you're you not. Know, and and yeah. you're not, you're not, you know, because people constantly say, are you going to do shoes? Are you going to turn to fashion? I went, He's dead. <laughs> I said he's party. He's been, you mean he's party pad? He has been gone for a long time. You just haven't really realized it. I have. I don't want to do those things anymore. It's not even that I can or can't do them. I don't want to. They don't bring me joy. I just the idea of being in a factory in Italy Monday to Friday in a field like just going oh, connect disconnected from everything I love. No, thanks. <laughs> you know, even though all the money and the fame and everything that came with making that decision, no, thanks. It just, it's not, not what I'm interested in at all. Um, I think people, they're searching for connection. And I think the, you know, 80s, 90s, there, there was a big disconnection from source, from spirituality, from maybe what was real. I mean, it's, it's only continuing more and more on, you know, certain, like the pop world. In a different way. Like yeah, yeah, in a different way. Plastic surgery, you don't like yourself, change yourself. But don't work on yourself, just change your face. Your lip, get bigger lips, that'll make you happy. Get bigger yeah. boobs, that'll make you happy. No, <laughs> it'll just make you more unhappy because <laughs> you still haven't made peace with yourself, not just what you look like in the mirror. That's true. Um, what would you say to Party Patrick or Party Pat today if you could talk to him and see him on a dance floor, pleasing, <laughs> pleasing everybody? <laughs> Um, there was just a point where it became becoming a clown. You know, it was just putting on this face. I remember being at someone's house uh, and I was really not happy. And he goes, are you okay? And I said, you don't want to know. 
And he went, what? I said, let's be honest. You've invited me for the weekend because I'm fun. You want me to be fun. I said, you don't want to know that I had the worst week of my life. And And he was such an amazing friend. He goes, I forbid you from ever having fun in my house ever again. I went, okay, that's a bit warm. (laughs) I understand the concept. I said, but thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be me and not have to be the center of attention and performing and cheering everyone up and doing whatever. Um, I would just try to identify the point where it went from being real to being a facade. Mm. And I would, I don't know how, what I'd say to myself, just be very conscious that you're staying true to yourself because I am fun. I have an infectious laugh. I have a you big do. smile on my face. I have a big smile on my face. I know that, you know, so there's, there are worse things in life than being liked and being smiley and happy. But it's just that when you do that to, to mask something else is where it goes wrong. No, I think like even this Guardian article was, I mean, obviously it was very heavy because you described basically you wanted to kill yourself, but still yeah. you had this, let's call it, I don't know, Britishness that once your shoes had <laughs> around it that had this and it, sense I mean, of humor. Yeah, sense of humor. So, <laughs> <Pathos>. and, <laughs> and I mean, there, there are articles or let's say that are much heavier to read around this, which then as a normal human being, you're like, oh, I don't want to read that kind of super dark stuff let's um let's yeah. not read it but since you were able to even after your experience to really put it into some a little bit of a lighter idea it's just it's a it's a talent it really is a talent i feel i i want to i want it to be real and i yeah. think that's what the, my whole career my success like i said the wannabe years i was living the wannabe lifestyle yeah. i search for authenticity and realness i don't want something manufactured and made up so you know like i said in the beginning when i got into toad i grew my hair long and started wearing like shamany clothes and then i was like what the hell are you doing <laughs> this is not a fashion show this is real and i brought it back to my authentic self uh, and when i do ceremony I don't do the ceremony like Cesar did because Cesar was Colombian. Um, you know, he was a beautiful brown-skinned indigenous man who spoke Spanish. I can't do the ceremony like he did. I would look crazy, <laughs> you know. So you have to do it your way. And he said to me, you will do it your way, and that'll be the right way for you. Um, and I look at other practitioners and I see things of how people do different things because it can be incredibly new age with, you know, whales chanting in the background, whatever. And it can become incredibly shamanic with people screaming and yelling and beating drums all around you. It really are different ways because there is no history of toad usage. It started in the 80s. There is no history of it going back thousands of years like there is with ayahuasca. So I really believe you should obviously create a safe environment and there's different parameters that are obviously required for a ceremony but there's a lot of room for people to do it their own way for me my way is to get out of the way of the experience it is not about me mm-hmm. <laughs> it is about you this is your time to be you so the less i can do the better the less touching the less talking the less i can do and you can have your experience that is the way that i approach it Great. And it just quickly make me, makes me think of um, something that, um, that reminds me of what Ben, you know, Ben Sessa from, uh, from London, from uh, Awaken Science. He's a great therapist also working with ketamine and um, oh, no, scientist know. also. And so he has this ketamine clinic in, in Bristol and he said that some of his patients don't want to have like singing yoga elephants on a wall. 
Yeah. They would rather like to look at Britney Spears and are wearing tracksuits. And <laughs> so that's a very interesting topic to me. Like how, where do you actually meet people for who are looking, who want to look into a psychedelic experience, but not necessarily with this kind of, let's say, fake spiritualism from Instagram around them? You know, it's all about making that person feel comfortable so they yeah. can surrender to the experience. Yeah. So if you are if you're preaching and you're, you know, just being too much of anything, too new ages, too shamanistic, too scientific, too much of anything, you have to look at the person you're working with and understand them and what they need out of the experience and then take them to that place or let them let the medicine let themselves take themselves to that place. So Yeah, I just, it's just all about talking to people. And I say, if you want this experience, if you want shaking rattles and beatings of drums, um, then I have someone, you know, who is Mexican or who is Colombian or who is whatever, and I would give you that experience, and I would say, go to them. Um, and I would say, maybe for your first experience, go to them, because the ritual, the ceremony is so beautiful. I have some people here on the island do toad ceremonies. They're four or five hours long. Before you even start to smoke the medicine, it's all blessings and chanting and tobacco and rape and all these sorts of things. And it is beautiful. But ultimately, to me, I find it unnecessary. Um, I'm almost a more Calvinistic, mm -hmm. uh, maybe Martin Martin Luther way looking at it. Um, I quite believe, you know, let, let's say if that is the Catholic version of a toad ceremony, I am a more um, stripped back version of a toad ceremony because I'm not necessary. You are. Your communication with yourself is the work. I am literally just the facilitator. I'm just holding space. Because when people get fixated and they sit up and go, thank you, thank you, thank you, you did this. I went, no, 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 you did this. You're so brave. You did this for yourself. Turn the mirror right back on them. Because it, it has nothing to do with me other than I'm creating a safe space. It's them and their work with themselves. Wow, that's a perfect last sentence of you. <laughs> thank thank you. you so much. This was, I do have no idea how much I appreciate you being so open about all of these things because um, I know it's not everybody's, you know, not everybody wants to do that, but I think it contributes tremendously to other people thinking about themselves that they're actually not crazy or that somebody else has obviously similar experiences. So It contributes, I think, a lot to um, to destigmatize these new healing methods. I would This is, say. People said, "Why did you do that article in the Guardian, Patrick? Why?" And I said, yeah. "Okay, because so many people, a certain percent, will make fun of it. That the next one, it'll be less odd, and the next one, it'll be less odd, and the next one, and eventually it'll become normal." Yeah. So, just some people, you know, I'm not going to say I'm brave, but I just had to I had to speak my truth. Um, I had to get the word out there to maybe help the next person, the next person, the next person. And that's the, that's the idea behind it for me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Patrick, for being super open about your life to our listeners and to me. So I really, really appreciate it. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Loved it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to 
www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a new health club now. Or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.